Forrest, I'm retiring. Good. I'm Whatever retired. you want, man. I'm still waiting. I'm no, it's like, happening. Yeah, I support you. It's happening. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It's happening. Mm-hmm. The main, yeah, well, the main okay. source mm-hmm. of my trouble is you. Well, I mean, 33 years into that one, man. Well, like, no, that's just no, I mean, par for the course. Okay, no so better I'm way up, to I'm spend recording. a Saturday morning, though. Yeah, afternoon. Yeah, no. I'm Although I'm talking with your beloved child. Yeah, well, I gotta get my haircut better. Your haircut's beautiful. Don't worry about it, man. Don't don't be attached to your presentation in the world. I know that's always a problem for you, Dad. You really worry about how you present yourself. <laughs> um, this is a real consideration for you. Like, am I am I beautiful enough? I don't know. Maybe I need more product. Oh, oh yeah, that'll that'll be the day. Uh, <laughs> okay. Okay. How are you feeling? I've been recording. We're good. Great. Okay, so we got the video, got the audio. Yes? All right, three, two, one. Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist and a best-selling author who spent over 35 years teaching people the key lessons from psychology and contemplative practice that lead to a good life. And I'm also happy to say that he's my dad. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm good, honestly, and tickled pink that we get to do this with each other. Yeah, no, it's great. And so today we're going to be continuing what we were doing last week, where we were exploring our top 10, if you will, practices for the long road of life, or however you want to kind of think about it. These are key ideas, practices, um, thoughts, sometimes concepts that have really helped us get to where we are today, and we've just found them both to be of enormous personal use. So they're not in any particular order. We covered five last week. The two that I talked about were increasing the space between stimulus and response, as well as, oh God, which of my other ones? Oh, it was the impact of childhood experiences. Yes, I've got my whole list in front of me, and I'm like, which one of these did I talk about before? It was respecting the impact of childhood experiences, and particularly going back and thinking about your childhood, thinking about the things that you were then, the ways you were then, and how you want to be more some of those ways today. So Rick, how about you? Which were your three? Oh, they were get on your own side, widen your view, and take in the good. Three great practices. So that was five there. We're going to do five more today. Uh, We began with you last time, so I guess we should flip it around and start with me because I'm the guy with three this time. Okay, so getting right into it, I get made fun of a lot in my life. It's really hard. It's really tough. My friends, they relentlessly tease me. Um, I'm mostly joking, but uh, this is actually based in that story a little bit where my friends have started, it's become a bit of a meme in my interactions with them, this phrase, different people are different. Uh Uh-huh. Where often we'll be talking about something about uh, some disagreement that happens or some way in which different people are reacting to things differently or whatever. And I'll say some version of, well, different people are different. And it's just become a bit of a meme inside of the group. But I think that for all of its obviousness, you know, it's one of those phrases where it is inherently true, of course. It's kind of like nothing digs ditches like shovelfuls of dirt. It's one of those. (laughs) Or your various <laughs> phrases around nothing gets work done, like spending time in the chair in front of my computer or all those other dad-isms. 
<laughs> but I think that underneath that, there's some really, really deep truth, and maybe even particularly some really, really deep truth for the time that we're in right now. Yeah. Uh, this, of course, is not an excuse for inappropriate behavior. Just somebody being different doesn't mean that they get to do whatever they want. But it does pull us into a real respect for individual variation, and maybe even a movement into empathy. And an understanding, honestly, because a lot of the time I look at other people's behavior through the lens of how I regard my own behavior. What are the lessons that I learned about the way that this behavior is? What are the things that I think about it? Um, what are the experiences that I had that taught me that this behavior was appropriate or inappropriate, whatever it might be? And it's a real reminder to appreciate other people's unique experiences and the ways in which those experiences came together to create a unique person who is distinctly not me. Alongside that, there's the classic walking a mile in their shoes, mm. seeing through their eyes, however you want to kind of think about it. And I just think it really helps us, um, again, connect with a form of empathic relating that's really hard to get into sometimes otherwise. So different people are different. That's one of mine. Forrest, could you give an example of a time when sure. maybe you started out and you, you thought that something was just a, a self-evident universal uh, and you were mm. talking about it and coming from it, let's say, and you realized in conversation with another person, or maybe they were very even assertive about it, that no, to them, it just isn't self-evident at all that that's how to be in life or what to value or a rule or uh, how people should not or, sh or should, in fact, treat each other and so on. An example? It's a great question. Um, there are so many examples that could get me into a little bit of trouble here. Uh, I'm thinking most of the ones that I'm immediately thinking of right now, maybe because it's late October and in an election year, are political in nature. Uh -huh. But maybe alongside that, Approaches to child rearing. This huh. is a funny one to talk about, but basically the idea, the um, this is a bit of a stereotype, so take it with a grain of salt. But the difference between the quote unquote strong father or strict father worldview mm -hmm. and the more nurturing mother or in a more gender neutral way, the nurturing parent worldview. Um, because I was brought up in a really nurturance framework. There was you know, not a lot of corporal punishment, if any at all. Um, you guys were very warm and fuzzy with me. There was a lot of investigation of my individual experiences and feelings and all of that. And I thought that that was just like the way that you should do it, mm. basically. Now, of course, I'm biased towards my own beliefs. I still think to an extent that that's uh -huh. the way that you should do it. But all of the other worldview stuff that springs from that kind of way of thinking about the relationship between those in power and those who aren't. Because parents and children is kind of the ultimate power dynamic, yep. right? And it can serve as a real metaphor for so many other systems that exist in our world. So the contrast between that and the kind of more strong parent, assertive parent ideology, where there's a focus on children are not capable of regulating their own behavior, they must be taught how to regulate it, and we do that uh, through a carrot and stick approach. We reward them for good behavior and we punish them for bad behavior. And you can kind of think about that again, just drilled up at the level of society more broadly. How do we approach uh, questions like who should have healthcare? or what kind of social systems should be in place to protect different classes of people from different kinds of inappropriate harm, and the different worldviews that can exist around whether or not that harm is inappropriate, or whether or not people quote-unquote had it coming. You know, as you can probably tell from just the way that I'm using this language, I have a perspective on that, and it's a strong perspective. But I think that I used to 
think that people who disagreed with me on these things were just barbaric and wrong. <laughs> and the more that I've delved into the research on things like child rearing or the complexity of who ends up paying for a social system that we have in place and all of the nuance that's built into that, um, all of the questions that can get quite thorny, you know, whatever, that it's just kind of complicated a lot of the time. And for me, the different people are a different phrase is sort of a shorthand for recognizing complexity. Complexity in view, complexity in an individual, and our kind of simplifying movement that we often have to paint other people with a very black and white brush. Mm. Great. And building on that, obviously, as you're mm. very well aware of, this speaks to many kinds of diversity. Yeah. Temperamental totally. diversity, yep. neurological diversity. Some people are more Cultural, cautious and yeah. restrained, others are more spirited mm -hmm. and exuberant. Da -da. Then you have highly diverse and often privileged forms of life experiences uh, and the ways in which uh, I try to keep in mind that the person I'm interacting with, who's maybe landing on me in some way, or maybe I'm landing on them some way, everyone has a secret struggle. I have a secret mm -hmm. struggle, you have a secret struggle. Secret to other people, it's not so apparent. That person next to us has some kind of a secret struggle some form of suffering that we don't probably really know about. Much as we know our own suffering, we know our own struggles quite intimately, and they're not so apparent often to other people. So these are aspects of what you're saying that I, I want to toss in the hopper here and, and build on what you're saying. No, I, I think that that's really well said. And you know, it's a good reminder for me, even inside of this idea itself, um, particularly, again, uh, cultural differences in behavior is a great example of this. Mm -hmm. I was doing a lot of research recently on on two different topics. The first one was educational topics and how people from different cultural backgrounds often attach to educational environments in different kinds of ways. I had a great conversation recently with Alison Briscoe-Smith, who deals a lot with the way that children um, experience and understand racism. Mm -hmm. And alongside that, what we do inside of our educational structures about that fact. Yeah. And it was just really enlightening to me. Um, and it was really helpful to kind of think about the different cultural approaches to these questions and the ways that that can, you know, increase our experience of difference mm -hmm. and getting comfortable with that, getting okay with that, being all right with the fact that, you know, there might not be a black and white answer to the question that we're asking here mm -hmm. and that there might just be a different solution for different populations of people. Great, great, great. So yeah, so that's my first one. Right. How about you, Dad? Well, actually, it leads very naturally into the fourth of my five that I get, uh, mm -hmm. which is open your heart. Mm. And one thing that does tend to happen as we imagine our way empathically and respectfully into something of the life of another person, that does tend to open our heart. And more generally, we can just deliberately cultivate the practice of opening our heart. With that opening can come compassion and love. Uh, we can open our heart to ourselves. Often we find that the one person toward whom our heart is most closed is ourselves. And it's very interesting to take the experience of, let's say, opening your heart with regard to somebody else, and then know what that feels like, and then say, okay, what would it be like to open my heart to me. Mm, Whoa, mm -hmm. that's a very interesting experiential 
exploration, like a corridor to move through, opening your heart to yourself. We don't have to agree with those that we open our heart to. Uh, In fact, in a funny kind of way, as we open our heart to others who are our adversaries, we can actually become more skillful in dealing with them, and we get less impacted by them because there's something about heartfeltness and warm-heartedness. It's it's increasingly not a a mystery in terms of neuropsychology. Open-heartedness and warm-heartedness have very protective and refueling and and regenerating and uh, qualities applied to ourselves as we deal with challenges and difficulties. And then just the last thing I would say about uh, opening our heart is that as we do that, you can kind of feel more and more like there's a current of heartfeltness and openness and even lovingness moving through you. You are then more able in the Martin Buber framework, you're more able to regard others as thou's rather than it's. I think one of the problems of our time is that uh, we treat so many others as it's. And it's easy to do that because we see them in very two-dimensional ways through media and also uh, in our politically charged tribal time. It's easy to regard other people as ridiculous, foolish, bad, it's to our I rather than a thou to our I. And Hmm. so I think that for me, it's been actually an incredibly important fundamental piece of my own practice over the last 20-ish years, 20, 30 years to really prioritize love as a field of practice and a deliberate intention to to become actually more loving as a trade and more open-hearted and large-hearted as a trade over time. I think that's great. So central in this moment. I think that the first question that I hear people ask about this when it comes up as a topic is, okay, but how do I open my heart to someone, as you were saying, that I really disagree with? Or how do I open my heart, quote unquote, to somebody who wishes ill for me or wishes to do me harm? Shouldn't I protect my heart? Shouldn't I protect my core? I know that you're actually making some pretty nuanced distinctions here between being vulnerable and opening your heart and whatever else, but how would you kind of speak to that person? Yeah, it's a super important question. It's absolutely mm. central. I mean, we have to work our way through. You know, that question is critically important. Uh, one way to work our way through it is to sort of imagine that your heart, uh, metaphorically, and who knows, mysterious energies, right? It's like a <laughs> Wi-Fi. It's like a Wi-Fi base station. So you're radiating. Mm warm-heartedness, strong-heartedness, open-heartedness, non-differentially in all directions. So others move through the field of that. Your friends, the people you admire and respect, they move through the field of your open-heartedness. Your enemies, your adversaries, your opponents also can move through that field of open-heartedness. And establishing that in yourself establishes this really self-feeding kind of freedom in that you just start to feel more and more that your goodness as a being is not contingent on. It's not Mm. dependent on whether the person moving through your field is particularly nice to you. Now, while being rested in the heart, as it were, radiating 
you know, in all directions, as the Buddha put it a long time ago, as best we know, omitting none. Hmm. Meanwhile, you see other people really clearly. In a funny kind of way, hmm. too, opening your heart increases discernment. We start recognizing other people. Also, as we rest more in our own heartfeltness, uh, we feel more capacity to claim our own values, to stand in our own principles and values, including in uh, relationship to those values, the recognition that what others are doing is really bad, really terrible, really harmful, abhorrent, appalling, disgusting, criminal, let's say. And to do that, not in a kind of top-down righteous way, but mm. in a way that's very grounded in um, a deep humanity, a deep large-heartedness. So actually, open-heartedness enables us to be more discerning because then we're less cluttered and um, clouded by ill will and resentment and grievance and rage and vengeance and fantasies of vengeance. Open-heartedness also helps us deal with others because we feel more that our, that our morality has a kind of legitimacy to it. It, it feels mm -hmm. validated. Mm -hmm. we, there's a moral courage. We, we, there's a moral confidence in our view. And we're more effective because mm. we're less intimidated by them. When our hearts are open, in a funny kind of way, you get less intimidated by bullies of all kinds. You become more skillful. You become more able. And I think we've seen these qualities in people like Martin Luther King Jr., you know, other reformers throughout history, that their open-heartedness actually aided them in seeing what they see, valuing what they value, and planning what they plan. It all works together. Now, being able to really, really, really practice the epitome of lovingness with those who are torturing you or doing terrible things to those you love, that's, that's an incredibly high bar. And it's okay to not be able to cross that bar. So we cross the bar, as it were, that we can cross, and, I, and we don't get lost in these weird, almost like college sophomore thought experiments, like, well, how could you open your heart to Hitler? Well, okay, it's not Hitler. I'm talking about <laughs> my dad or my sure. neighbor or my yeah. teenage kid who's driving me crazy. Yeah. Not that you would ever do that for us. Uh, and no, so, I was a perfect child. You were actually. You guys were never anyway. bothered by me in any moment. <laughs> uh, we never got into any kind of fight or anything else, you know? It was, no, obviously no I'm joking. Um, yeah, so just finished there. It reminds me of this friend of mine. He went to, um, he lived in Asia for nine years as a, and as a monk in Thailand. Mm -hmm. And I asked him, uh, did you ever meet anyone enlightened? What were they like? You know, it's sort of like, like the, the, the sort of the celebrity theory of, of awakening. What were they like? What's Brad Pitt really like? <laughs> you know, anyway, did you ever meet anyone enlightened? And he said, well, well, you know, in that tradition, they watch you for a while and they have high standards and they see how you are under all conditions. I went, okay, did you ever meet anyone enlightened? He said, well, there were definitely some people who were really, really far along, maybe all the way. Mm. What were they like? I asked him. He said, well, they always loved you. In other words, if you were nice to them, they loved you. If, they, if you were bad to them, they loved you. Their love was not contingent on what you were like. Now, alongside that, if they, they would still do what they needed to do. If they were running the monastery, sure, yeah. they would say, no, sorry, you can't deal drugs out of the monastery. You need to go home and leave your robes behind. But you're welcome back to listen to the public talks. 
You know what I mean? They were able to take. They just they have, they were they they yeah. saw what they saw. They valued what they valued. They planned what they planned, and they acted in the way that they wanted to act. But me and and meanwhile, their love remained. Mm. And that's and an that's aspiration. A great way to, that's a yeah, that's a great way to talk about it. Just as a one-second reflection, I, I think that with any of these things, it's possible to engage in a certain amount of whataboutism. Yeah. Uh, you know, what about this? What about that? And okay, let's just kind of assume that we're talking about the 95% middle of the distribution right. um, for all of these things, because of course, we could endlessly list a variety of caveats for all of the things that we're saying. And with that in mind, here is my next key practice, which has some caveats associated with it. And it's uh, something that is very foresty. It's cultivating a stance of healthy skepticism. Mm, you're super. One of your superpowers. What? What are my superpowers? Healthy skepticism. I hope healthy skepticism. And then skepticism. they call it great doubt. Mm, great doubt. Okay. Yeah. And so there are a lot of different ways to think about this. We can think about it in terms of how we relate to other people and it being directed at other people, but that's actually mostly not how I mean it. I, I mean it a little bit more in the framing, uh, you could take it Suzuki Roshi with Don't Know Mind or Beginner's Mind, uh, the concept of great doubt. So it's directed at both self and other, but I honestly think of it mostly as being directed at self. Mm. And this gets back to something that I was saying in the previous episode, the idea that your mind might be on your side, but your brain is often not your friend. And I think that that's like a really important distinction to make here. It might be on your side, but its advice is not always great advice. It's really, really easy for us to fall into very, very heavy self-identification. Uh, attachment to the views that we have, deep belief in certainty. Certainty feels good. And alongside that, a sort of unhealthy skepticism for people who, again, are not like us. And for me, it's about kind of moving into a little bit more suspicion of that skepticism, maybe, when the people are not like us being a little bit more skeptical when the people that we're thinking about are more like us, including being the most skeptical when the person is us. Ah. <laughs> and I think that that's kind of an important way to think about the idea of healthy skepticism, because it's just really easy for the brain to be taken in by a variety of different things out in the world. And the more that we try to, again, take that space between an idea, maybe, and our thought about it, to kind of think about skepticism that way, that's one way to do it, and then also cultivating that beginner's mind. Approaching things with a openness, a warmth, and a willingness to be convinced, um, I think, again, is something that you just don't see that often these days, and it's really quite refreshing when you do see it. I think that's fantastic, Forrest. You know, like these bumper stickers, don't believe everything you think, right? Yeah. yeah. No, totally. I think that's a huge part of it. That's a nice, simple, tidy way to put it. Is there anything in particular, concretely, that you find yourself mm -hmm. usefully skeptical of? Oh, man. Um, to Wow. Uh, this is going to segue a little bit into my last one, but the biggest one is craving. You know, not to go Buddhist up in here, but uh, craving, Why not? desire. You know, uh... you know hey, <laughs> but like, no, for real. Um, we... <laughs> have a lot of cravings. Yeah, The brain is constantly hungry. And I'm using that in the general sense of the word, not specifically having to do with satiating hunger. 
we are, as you have said many, many times on this podcast, we're always looking for something new to want. And again, this is one of those things where I think it's really helpful to look at the brain and take an extra second to ask ourselves the question, do I really want this? Yeah. And that I think is a huge one. Do I really want this? And or is it worth the price? Oh, yeah. Or is it worth the price? Or in for me, the way that has been the most helpful, is this behavior serving me? Mm. To be skeptical of my own tendencies, my own behaviors, mm. and ask me myself the question, is this behavior, and maybe a key word, still serving me? It might have served me once in the past, but is it still serving me? And that's something that I try to ask myself on a almost daily basis when I'm being good about being in practice with it. I'm not always good about being in practice with it, but when I am, it comes up a lot. And that has been really, really personally helpful for me. And, you know, maybe more broadly, um, having a certain amount of skepticism about certainty. Mm. I think that certainty is really dangerous. Mm -hmm. There are very, very few things in the world that we can be authentically certain about. Mm. And I think that it's really important when we found those things to be strong in our certainty, but to have it be, uh, it's kind of the Dunning-Kruger effect a little bit, the idea that like the more we know about something, often the less confident we are in our own knowing and vice versa. Mm. And I think that it's good to have that confidence once we get there, but it's tough to get there. You got to know a lot to really know about something. So having that uh, question about certainty in your mind, I think can be really helpful and healthy. Yeah. If I could, I wanted to add one more yeah, totally. um, related to what you're saying, which is mm -hmm. it's been very helpful for me, just as you talk about putting a buffer between stimulus mm -hmm. and response. For me, it's helpful to put a buffer between demand and response. Mm -hmm. In other words, mm -hmm. other people who are expressing certainty or are trying to push us or there, there's an invasive. Convince you of their certainty. Yeah, yeah totally. or get you to do something or speed up mm -hmm. or, or hop to their you know tune. And uh, maybe because <laughs> I am reflexively independent and stubborn, <laughs> having grown up with very dominating parents in different ways uh, mm. with well-intentioned and a lot of love on their part, you know, for me, it's helpful to be kind of skeptical of these things other people tell us with with mm. certainty or generalizations, or it has to be this way, or it can't be that way. To give the obvious disclaimer on this, we could not be stronger supporters of scientific knowledge That's and right. all that good stuff. But even inside of that, it is really helpful. I mean, one of the things, so I put together uh, notes for almost every podcast episode on our Patreon page. And a lot of the time, they're, they're pretty research-intensive. I try to quote a lot of studies and, and kind of really understand the field that I'm talking about. It also helps me. I get to learn a lot. And one of the things that, one of the big teaching lessons of that process has been really coming to terms with the way that our body of knowledge changes over time. Mm -hmm. There are all these studies from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, geez, even from 10 years ago. Um, that we look at today and we can see the holes in them. Mm -hmm. Recent thing that I looked at recently is this idea called the backfire effect, which is basically the concept that when you present information to somebody where it doesn't match their worldview, that it can actually increase the intensity of their belief in the opposing worldview, where it not only doesn't convince them, it actually strengthens their belief. And it was this uh, big study that was done 
some time ago. It was quite famous. It really got into pop culture. You can see it in a bunch of New Yorker articles and stuff like that. Here's the problem. We've never been able to replicate it. Every other study that has ever been done on the backfire effect, as near as I was able to identify, finds that it doesn't actually exist. And in fact, when people used question sets that included like 50 questions with opposing information, uh, people updated their opinion on 49 out of 50 of them. The only one where they didn't were, was when they used the original question that was tested in the original study mm. in the exact phrasing that it was used in that study. Yeah. So there was something about the way that they posed the questions initially to research this concept that biased their responses, that yeah. got them to the wrong place. And this happens, obviously, all the time in the social sciences. But it happens in other sciences as well, where we're constantly updating our knowledge of the field. And again, this is sort of another way to have a certain amount of skepticism about people who are just super certain. Mm. Because sometimes it turns out that we had really good research at the time, and we really thought it through, and all that good stuff. But mm, end of the day, maybe it's not so true. So again, just to kind of reinforce what you were saying about that moment of like, how sure are you and why are you sure? So, okay, that's mine. How about yours? Here's my last one. Honor the gift of your one wild and precious life. That phrase, your one wild and precious life, many people know, comes from the poet Mary Oliver. Uh, it's a really touching kind of phrase. You can just feel it. And what by which I mean, and I don't really mean this abstractly, I mean it very intimately. This is your one life. It's like the Eminem rap song, which maybe we'll play as a theme song back music, <laughs> one shot. It is your sure, one shot. Sure. It is your one shot. I don't I, know, I don't know if we're going to be able to get the license for that one, but <laughs> well, hey, a little micro clip, a little too I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, uh, people can check it out, you know, from the movie Eight Mile, which is really quite a powerful wow, movie. Oh, Dad, you're really, you're really boosting your street cred here. I don't, I wasn't, I wasn't anticipating this. <laughs> <laughs> Next, you're going to start dropping some bars from Kendrick, and I'm really I'm not going to know what to do with myself. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, hey, that's good. It is your one shot, right? And your palms are sweaty, and as Eminem talks and raps, <laughs> you know. Stop, 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 stop! I can't, I can't take it anymore. Stop, 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 stop. No, but keep going. But I just, I can't, I can't do it. Having my dad do this is too funny. <laughs> and I'm feeling the beat, right? <laughs> you know, do do and it is your one shot, and it's the same thing that going, you know, like why do so many, like the 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 movie Dead Poets Society, this mm -hmm. famous scene in which uh, Robin Williams, bless his memory, is taking the uh, young men in this posh private school through the awards cabinets of all these athletes like them in black and white photos from years past with their trophies and whatnot. And then as he walks through um, past the cabinets, he says to his students, you know. Every picture that you looked at, every single one of those people is no longer alive. Mm. Carpe diem, gentlemen, seize the day. And that's in there. So, and, and part of it is that I think so many people are, as a friend of mine once put it, looking out at a bunch of people at a party, what a bunch of tame monkeys. And in other words, there's something about the ways in which many people are living so much smaller and less wild than they really could afford to live and constrained, or they're pushing downstream, you know, deferring one month after another, one year after another, 
what they really, really, really want to do in their life, maybe out of mm-hmm. fear of what other people will think. And the bottom line, it's horrible and wonderful. Most other people just don't care that much about you, good or bad. Yeah, they just don't totally. care that much about you. And honestly, another little hard truth, many, many people are going to disappoint you. Mm. They're not going to do the hard thing. They're not going to do the right thing if it's hard. And that's, that's just it. So a few will. Mm. You have yourself for us come through. Some peop- people demonstrate that, but many people won't. And so you're kind of on your own in a lot of ways. What kind of life do you want to have? How could you honor the gift of it? Think about all the bizarre combinations of causes and conditions that had to come together to manifest as your birth. Mm. And then the life that you've had. Wow. As you pointed out to me one time, going back to your class in UC Berkeley, with one of the founders of this theory, that this asteroid, essentially, or big comet or something big. Big history, there, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. big history. The, Al- the Alvarez family, father and son, established mm-hmm. that it was an asteroid, essentially, that hit the Earth around 65 million years ago. And then with that impact, changed the course of everything, cleared out the dinosaurs, and opened up the ecological niches so that the mammals of the time could then, 65 million years later, have two big, tall, furry primates talking with each other right now in this podcast. And I figured out that, or and I think Alvarez pointed out, that given the pace, the, the speed at which the Earth is orbiting the sun and the diameter of the Earth, there was no more than a 10-minute window, 10 minutes hmm. out of hundreds of millions of years, a 10-minute window during which the Earth had to be in exactly the right spot for that bullet of an asteroid, pa-pam, to strike us in where the Yucatan Peninsula is roughly today. Wow. All that had to come together for you to be you and here and now. Grab hold. Squeeze the juice out of the orange, as you put it. Take your Mm -hmm. one shot right? Uh, Keep on rocking in the free world. And as Bill and Ted. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Every pop culture reference. Be excellent to each other and party on. (laughs) I'm going to clip that whole section. We're going to use it as a little clip. Um, That's great. No, I mean, I, I really honestly feel like I have nothing to add because you sung the Claren song and dropped Drop the 17 <laughs> different pop culture references at the same time. None of which, by the way, was I prepared for. Um, the closest one was the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs. That's that's in your that's in your typical repertoire, if you will. But uh, even Bill, Bill and Ted is a little bit. But all the other ones I did not see coming. So thank you for brightening my day with that one, Bob's. Oh my goodness, that's so funny. That's great. Well, you get the last word. I, I get the last word here. So uh, jokes aside, I think you're totally right on in terms of respecting the opportunity that we all have in this one incarnation. Who knows? Maybe there will be others. Maybe there will not be. But either way, regardless of what does or doesn't happen next, you got this chance and you can try to make the most of it. And, you know, I certainly struggle with that plenty. And I think many people do. So kind of alongside that, maybe a good segue. Um, I'm going to finish with, again, a very Buddhisty one. We've swapped hats, I guess, during this, uh, <laughs> during this list of, of our 10 favorite practices. And I'm going to talk about impermanence and mm. respecting and appreciating impermanence. 
um, all things rise, including including our one wild and precious life, and all things fade away, including that one special life. And we can think about this in the biggest possible scale, or we can think about it in really pretty small moments. Uh, I we had a conversation a, a while ago with Roshi Joan Halifax, and I talked about or I kind of asked her about, I should say, uh, the little deaths of life, these mm. little moments where we go through the world and we realize that we're doing something probably for the last time, whether that's the last time that you go rock climbing or it's the last time that you talk to a friend or see a parent or whatever else. And these are, of course, incredibly touching and can be extremely sad or disruptive or traumatic um, moments from people. And I think that consistently trying to train in the truth of impermanence, the truth that all things rise and fall away, allows us to relate to those moments and relate to our lives broadly with so much more freedom. Mm. Because if you're clinging on to the point that you were making a second ago, Dad, it's really easy to play small because there's so much risk associated with everything. There's the perception that, you know, what happens if this goes wrong or whatever else. But in the broader framing of 13 and a half billion years and all the things you were just talking about a second ago, the comet that killed the dinosaurs and all of our inevitable rising and fading away, it just becomes a lot easier, I think, to be free with our behavior. Mm. And for me, that kind of recognition of impermanence is really a, a form of ultimate freedom. Um, and it's not approval of what happens, but it's acceptance. And it's accepting that we need to kind of loosen our grip on attachment. Yeah, Our desire, and this could be in small ways too, right? Our desire for things to be a certain kind of way, uh, whether that's the state of the world, other people's behavior, the damage that we might've incurred coming out of childhood, whatever else. It's like, well, we're here now. And what can we do? You know, How can we not cling to those things in a way that is harmful for us? And of course, holding and appreciating and respecting the great parts of our life. And for me, I find that, to speak a little fancifully for a second, knowing that the rose is going to lose its petals eventually actually helps you appreciate it more. Mm. Um, it's not a kind of dismissiveness of it. Oh, it's just impermanent. It doesn't matter. It's, no, wow, this is so great that this is going to be here for a short period of time. And let's really get the most out of it while we can. Uh, for me, that's been probably the biggest impact that impermanence has had inside of my life, that, that appreciation for the passing beauty of things in a variety of different ways. Mm. So. Incredibly touching. Really great. Really, really yeah, great well, for thank us. Thank you. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, obviously, this is something that you've reflected pretty deeply on. I'm not sure if there's any more to say here than what's been said, but I'm certainly interested in your thoughts. Well, you've said it Beautifully. And it's funny, I, I had an experience of this in an odd sort of way uh, just yesterday, actually. Mm. So I was, I was doing something and I, I had my phone out with its clock mm. turned on. And I glanced at my phone in the moment that the minute changed to the next minute. Mm -hmm. And then I continued what I was doing. I was puttering around doing something in the bedroom. And then I happened to glance back at my phone at the exact moment that it ticked off the next minute. Mm. And then I just reflected, wow, I experienced right there the duration of a single minute, and mm. which is fairly brief, you know. Mm -hmm. And 
it landed on me in a very palpable way that that minute was now gone. Hmm. I was never, ever, ever, ever going to get that minute back. It was irretrievably departed. The sand had fallen through my sing my fingers, and I was never going to get it back. And there was something about that, that single minute, and then minute after minute after minute accumulating in my, in my life, in everyone's life, that somehow really touched me. The, the tangibleness of it, the palpableness of it, the realness of it. It's easy to be abstract about this and cliched about, oh yeah, impermanence, you know, the river moves on, you put your finger in it, it's a different river the next minute. Like, sure, whatever, sure. man, <laughs> send me the next Hallmark card. Uh, but to really <laughs> feel it is quite something. Yeah, And I, totally. I would add, because this is quite well known in the meditative traditions, if you become very aware of impermanence and ephemeral nature of all experience, uh, it, and the groundlessness, in effect, of all experience, it can feel alarming. It can feel like and like everything's being taken from you, and therefore, it's very important to pay aware of the be aware of the arising, pay attention mm -hmm. to what is arising alongside what is passing away, and and to rest in the middle of that. And then, as you do increasingly rest in the middle of that. And I want to call out a book I'm reading currently called The First Free Women. These are enlightenment poems uh, from the earliest Buddhist nuns. These are women mm. whose written record survived well over 2,000 years to the present time. And it's just remarkable in a good translation. And they really focused on the arising and the passing away as the heart of an enlightenment practice. It is enlightening to rest in the arising and passing away. Because as you do, you start to rest in the standing wave. In the eternal now, in which things arise and pass away. So it's paradoxical. The more you become aware of impermanence, the more you get drawn into the the eternal present, the permanently eternal present. Yeah, and that contains tremendous freedom as you relax about what is appearing and what is passing away, and you cling less to it, and you identify less to it with it, and you selfless in your orientation to it. So anyway, that since you cued me up there with that softball, I thought I'd toss that in, building on what you're saying here. Totally. I thought that was an awesome reflection on it. And it reminds me of, of something that I guess I was thinking about while I was saying it. But this it's this funny contrast, right, between just thinking about in the previous episode, I talked about the impact of childhood experiences. And it's this funny thing where you are no longer the child, but the child is still there, mm. Right. Where the experience has passed, yeah. it is irrevocably gone, it is completely impermanent, and at the same time, it has a residue that exists into this day. And you see that with all things, right? Whether you want to talk about the ripples of the stone in the pond or whatever. But it's this funny thing. It's appreciating that it is no longer there. It is no longer happening to you. You don't have to be bound to it. But at the same time, it does leave a mark mm -hmm. and that kind of movement of the um the removal of the paw print in the mud as it is slowly filled in over time mm. by the water however you want to think about it i think it's just a really fascinating characteristic of life mm. and a lot of life is about balancing those two things like understanding that things are no longer actively happening while also appreciating the residues that they leave behind yeah you know, maybe I'll just finish a little, my mm -hmm. little bit about it. Um, Please, yeah. Well, I was thinking as well about how impermanence is real for other people. Mm -hmm. And 
I was telling your mom recently, and I don't mean this in a morbid way, some like I teach a regular meditation group. We used to do it mm -hmm. in person, 80 people. Yeah. Many of them middle-aged or later middle-aged, and uh, which is pretty typical for a meditation class or gathering, <laughs> just yeah. real. And I would look around the room from time to time, and I would just kind of quietly ask myself, who among us will be first to die? Mm. Of this group of people tonight, there will be one person who will be the first to die of this group. It might even be me. And mm. what happens when you do that? And it reminds me of, I'm going to mistranslate it slightly, I'm sure, this haiku from Basho the poet, under the cherry blossoms, there are no strangers. So you can understand that in the sense of the cherry blossoms as a symbol of impermanence, of mm. a rising mm. beauty that fades within a day. And you lived in Japan for some weeks and you are very aware of Japanese culture, so there's some resonance here. And under the cherry blossoms, we are all subject to arising and passing away. We all have the opportunity on the one hand um, uh, to take in the good of the beauty of the blossoms, and we all must deal with our own transience and evanescence. So in that sense, there is a common humanity. There are no strangers under the shower of the impermanent cherry blossoms. And so when you look at other people in that way, you realize, like me, you will die. Like me, you are mortal. Like me, you are aging. Like me, you are wrinkling. Like me, you are sagging. <laughs> like me, <laughs> rust is not sleeping in your case uh. either. <laughs> entropy, <laughs> entropy is, <laughs> is real. Um, yeah, it comes to us all, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like me, you will be separated uh, one way or another uh, from everything you love someday. And it just mm. moves you into a deeper understanding of other people, more patience for them, less reactivity, and more sense of compassion and camaraderie with them. Totally. I think that's a great note to end the episode on. So that's it. Those are our 10 favorite practices, ideas, concepts, things um, that have had the biggest impact on us. And I think that taken as a whole, thinking back through the whole thing, it really is quite the list. And it's, it's I think, a true one for both of us. And, and the ones that you offered, Dad, have had a big impact on me. I think the ones that I offered have also had a big impact on you. Yes. So yeah, to offer a quick recap, mine were different people are different. This is about respecting individual variation um, and helping us move into empathy and appreciation for the ways in which people differ from us. The second was cultivating a stance of healthy skepticism, so not unhealthy skepticism particularly directed at ourselves and at the craving impulses of various kinds that the mind tends to come up with. And then finally, we just talked about it, impermanence. All things arise, all things pass away. How are we going to relate to that? And then relating to it, hopefully, as healthily as possible. So what were yours? Oh, it was open your heart and honor the gift of your one wild and precious life. I think that's great. And again, I love our list. I think it's a great list. Um, listeners, if you want to, you can shoot us an email. It's contact at being well podcast and uh, let us know what you thought about it and what yours are. I would actually love to hear from some people if it's just a comment on Facebook or an email or something on our Patreon, whatever. What are the practices that have made a huge difference in your life? That would be awesome if we could collect some of these together and who knows, maybe do something with them. That would be really great. So alongside that, if you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would take the time to subscribe to it, maybe leave a rating and a positive review. If you've really been enjoying the podcast, you can support us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. 
I put together a bunch of content each month for our patrons, including a Q&A that Rick and I do for people who are supporting us at a certain level on a monthly basis, a bunch of other additional material, and we're really building a kind of nice community over there, a really wonderful community of people, and I really do appreciate their support. So again, thanks for taking the time to listen to this. We had a great time doing it. I think that this episode, or these episodes, I should say, were really fun for us in particular. And uh, if you've been enjoying the podcast, I really hope that you'll tune back in next time and we'll talk to you soon.